This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr. David Brophy. David is a senior lecturer in modern Chinese history at the University of Sydney. He joined me to discuss his book, China Panic, Australia's Alternative to Paranoia and Pandering. We discuss the contents of his book in depth in the context of an upcoming federal election, a relationship between Australia and China that is already at an all-time low, and the recent escalating rhetoric and language from the coalition government on China. David talks about the foreign policy consequences of this, but more importantly, he also talks about the societal effects, which include a concerning growing anti-Chinese racism. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back onto the program Dr. David Brophy, who is a senior lecturer in modern Chinese history in the Department of History at the University of Sydney. And uh, we're going to be talking to David today about his recent book, China Panic, Australia's Alternative to Paranoia and Pandering, which was released last year through Black Ink and has very much a lot of contemporary relevance to the conversations that we've been having in Australian politics and foreign policy in recent weeks, but also in recent months. And these conversations, as we can tell, will be ongoing given the election campaign, which is unofficially underway here in Australia. Now, David is also very much interested in the history of Xinjiang and the Uyghur people, and he also is involved in a recently established group, the Sydney Anti-Orcus Coalition, and there is also a Melbourne or Victoria-based branch, uh, if you're interested, called No Orcus Victoria, and uh, I welcome David now. Hi there, David. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show, and it was really great to speak with you last time about similar issues, but we're going to thankfully get into some of the nuance of this topic, and anyone who has been following Australian politics in the last couple of weeks at minimum will have noticed that um, it's very hard to get nuance into a discussion and debate like this in terms of Australia's relationship with China. Chinese Australians and how they're treated and received in Australia and these conversations that we have about foreign influence and national sovereignty and these now challenges we're seeing to this so-called bipartisanship approach that we've seen between the coalition government and also the Australian Labor Party. So I'm really glad that we um, can finally get a chance to delve into these issues a little bit more. Now, first of all, I wanted to speak with you about the title of this book because it is pretty representative of the situation that we're we're finding ourselves in, China Panic. And you do address that in pretty much the first page of your book is to say why you've, you've titled it China Panic. Could you expound on that for us and really set the terms of the discussion here? Well, specifically what I'm talking about in terms of China Panic is a a discourse surrounding China that that picked up really quite notably in 2017. And it was uh, a lot of it had to do with the introduction of this new concept of foreign interference as a as a growing threat to the uh, the political system in Australia, a lot of innuendo about the activities of uh, Chinese Australians or Chinese uh, interests uh, in Australia. You know, it took on different dimensions when we started to see 
you know, really loud headlines about China's uh, increasing involvement in the in the Pacific region and so on. Um, the occasional intervention from the security agencies into public debate uh, along the lines that China had intention to take over the Australian political system in, in some way. And then you had quite, you had sort of the popularizers get on board with this books about uh, Chinese invasion uh, of uh, Australia and so on. And that was that was to me a really remarkable uh, development and one that I, I began following quite closely and um, eventually ended up writing this this book about. Now, of course, all the themes, um, all the tropes that are in play here have a have a deeper history. Uh, Australia has engaged in bouts of panic or paranoia towards international politics and the you know the perceived vulnerabilities of a of a white settler colony located uh, in Asia going back you know, really from the, the moment of its of its founding. What I see taking place around about 2017 is a, is a breakdown of a, a certain equilibrium that existed in elite foreign policy debate up until that point. And you still see these positions expressed in the within the foreign policy establishment, uh, even to this day. I mean, on the one hand, there's been a lot of enthusiasm towards China from the, uh, the governments up until quite recently, that Australia's uh, economic prosperity was entirely tied up with China, that, that China was our, you know, best friend keeping uh, Australia afloat, uh, you know, at the same time being balanced by the security perspective that China was a growing threat, that uh, China would uh, potentially one day compromise America and Australia's ability to to collaborate, to, to shape the region in the way that we would like to. And what has happened, I think, is that that debate has quite decisively tipped uh, in the direction of the um, the security perspective. Driven, I think, not so much by rational, you know, calculation that China really is threatening uh, Australia, but that China has got to the point where it is starting to challenge America's dominance in in Asia. And if you look historically, Australian foreign policy has always been built around the on the foundation of a of a collaboration with a more powerful great power in the region, be it Britain and then the United States, that by associating with that great power by by trying to gain influence you know around its decision making table that Australia could have some influence in the region as well so for people who are wedded to that sort of perspective to you know to contemplate an Asia without America or with at least with a with a reduced American role they see that as ultimately reducing Australia's significance relevance to the United States could possibly lead to a, an attenuation of the Australia America relationship and for a lot of people, that's that's kind of brought on a, a, a crisis. And I, I think that that's really, you know, when you follow the day-to-day bickering in Parliament, it can often seem that this is all just driven by electoral politics and so on. And clearly, there's a lot of cynicism, there's a lot of opportunism in what the government is doing at the moment with an eye to the upcoming election. But I, I do see this as part of a pattern that is being um, driven by these these deeper considerations. It's certainly not a new thing, these arguments and debates, and obviously the election has intensified the recent rhetoric that we've seen in Parliament within the last week or so, and um, maybe we'll just address that right at the outset so we can get past it in a way. 
by mentioning what's been happening and there was a series of events, I guess, in the sense that the head of ASIO had delivered an address and, and spoken about foreign interference now being a, a major issue for them. And obviously, terrorism is still an issue, but foreign interference has really kind of taken the lead. This is something that you address in the book uh, in terms of China, which we'll get to. But then we've also seen kind of a snowballing, I guess, uh, effect in terms of Peter Dutton picking up certain things in Parliament and then Scott Morrison himself also taking up the mantle and we've seen uh, words bandied around or phrases like Manchurian candidate, uh, which was withdrawn subsequently in Parliament. We've seen the coalition government accuse Labor of being China's pick in the election, which was something that Peter Dutton had suggested with no evidence for that position. And then we've seen uh, subsequently the head of ASIO actually go on to the ABC 730 program to um, douse down the flames of what's been happening and basically say that uh, all parties across all spectrums of politics are equal opportunity targets for foreign interference and that there is not one particular party that this activity is focused on. And he's obviously said a lot more. And then we've seen uh, Dennis Richardson, who was the secretary of DFAT, as well as ASIO boss and Australia's ambassador to Washington, actually saying that it's really essentially quite reckless to come out and suggest that there's a big difference or any daylight between the uh, Labor Party and the coalition government when it comes to national security. So that's a, a very, very broad and brief paraphrased version of what's been happening. What's your take on that situation? And, and obviously, because it does come up in the book, the fact that we have seen a rising involvement by security agencies in foreign affairs discussions. And I know that it's certainly come up in conversations I've seen around with people like Paul Keating, really saying that in the past, it was often a matter for DFAT, these relationships between you know, Australia and China and setting foreign policy. And now we've seen more and more that um, security agencies are entering into a more public discussion. So I wondered you know, what your assessments are of that, but also just the political rhetoric, the heightened rhetoric that we've seen in the last week. Yeah, well, it is the case that ASIO is playing a more public role. And I think that, I think that what got missed it was the way in which, you know, people took the story up and, and ran with it and then it took on momentum in, in Parliament. But if we go back to what ASIO was originally saying here, they lobbed this story into the, the public domain, a story that had no hard evidence uh, attached to it, uh, but it cre- created this immense stir around the threat of, of foreign interference. And I saw very little questioning of what exactly was going on here. They actually backtracked at certain points to say that, well, none of the candidates who were targeted here knew that they were being targeted and this wasn't actually related to any upcoming election. So it was all extremely vague and yet it it shifted the political discussion to a really significant degree. Now, now ASIO has since, since it became a sort of a partisan football, ASIO has since tried to step back and, and wash its hands of responsibility here by saying, you know, no, this is not about any particular party. And and again, they've sort of been praised for that without, I think, you know, real questioning of, of what is what is going on here. I think that, I mean, I think that the interventions from ASIO to try to hose things down a little bit are quite revealing in the sense that I think it indicates that there's a sense in the in Canberra, in the establishment, that 
this kind of stuff might not work for the government. Labor may well be the next government. And so, you know, the security agencies don't want to get off on the wrong foot with a potential Labor government. Because, of course, it is a very political thing to just throw these stories out into the media. Whatever the precise effects in terms of the elections, it's going to, you know, it's going to stoke, you know, increased anxiety. And it's, you know, and I'd really like to see more people in the media actually poking at these stories a little bit. Say, is, you know, is there anything here? Because we've had similar stories in the past where, you know, stories have come out about Chinese agents potentially grooming candidates for office. There was one a couple of years ago involving a guy called Nick Jal down in Melbourne who was, um, you know, written up in the press as, as potentially this, you know, this ideal candidate for China to plant someone in parliament. You know, then as more details came out, it, it turned out that he was, you know, he'd actually been in custody for fraud when the Liberal Party was doing its pre-selections in 2018. He was deep in debt. He ended up, according to police, committing suicide because of this debt. It didn't seem like a very realistic plot line that, that China would be interested in using someone like this to, to put people in, in parliament. And, you know, again, I, I wish we wouldn't move on from these stories so quickly. We could actually ask people for some evidence. The idea that the security agencies should just, you know, ask us to trust them. I mean, that is, that's the expectation, that, you know, that applies in authoritarian countries. I, I don't think it necessarily uh, should be the case here in Australia. Now, having said all that, obviously the Liberals have picked this up and tried to run with it, all these um, various attacks on on Labor. This is definitely an escalation in relation to what we saw in the last election campaign. There were, I suppose, trial rhetorical balloons that went up a, a couple of times before the last election trying to finger Labor as uh, as China's choice for the, the election. Government now really seems to be running hard on that line, and it does have a certain uh, last-ditch feel to it. There's been some discussion as to, is it going to work for them? People trying to speculate, and, and obviously it's received quite a critical response from certain quarters. At the same time, you know, when you look at the, the opinion polls as to Australian attitudes towards China, you know, negative attitudes towards China are slowly ticking up. And given that Labor is committed to this position of bipartisanship on foreign policy, Labor are never going to really confront the, the premises of this kind of attack from the Liberals. All, all they'll try and do is sort of turn it around, say, no, we're not the Manchurian candidates, you're the Manchurian candidates, you know. Um, mm. and, and that doesn't really do anything to diminish the sense that China is this looming threat that's that's trying to, to white out our, our political system. And I really wish the Labour Party would do more to take on those sort of basic notions. So what we end up having is, you know, sort of a debate about rhetoric, you know, is the government, you know, too heated in its rhetoric or something. But we, you know, we, we don't have a debate about policy and the government's orientation towards the, the US-China rivalry, which is, you know, what we really need to be talking about. And, and, and Labour doesn't want to have that debate either, unfortunately. No. Well, I mean, it was pretty obvious when former Prime Minister Paul Keating was trying to do that at the National Press Club recently and Labor, knowing that an election was around the corner, um, really did have absolutely zero interest engaging with what Paul Keating had put down in that conversation. And it was a really interesting conversation, as they always are when you listen to Paul Keating talk, whether you agree with him or not. I mean, he had some really great one-liners, as always, talking about the AUKUS agreement, which had recently come to fruition and had really spurred him on to say something in November. 
in relation to the AUKUS agreement and its um, effect on combating China, he said it's like throwing toothpicks at the mountain, which is probably true. These are things which are, I think, far more useful contributions because they're kind of breaking through a lot of the spin and um, really bringing to light some of the obvious hypocrisies as well. But not that we all have to get into a debate about what we agree with or don't agree with with Paul Keating, but given that he is someone who at least was trying to engage with policy when there aren't as many people doing that, you know, what are your thoughts on on those people who say that and run the line that we still do need to realise that Australia is in the Indo-Pacific or as it used to be called, the Asia-Pacific region, that we are one of many countries in this region, that we have always clearly been here and that we need to recognise that and first of all have, I guess, a respect for that but also have deeper ties that aren't necessarily just focused on this really imperialist colonial mindset that we've always really seemed to have since the British Empire came over here and and took what wasn't theirs. I wonder what your thoughts are on those arguments about Australia having those deeper ties. Right. Well, I mean, just just on Paul Keating for a second. I mean, Mm. as I was saying earlier, I mean, the China debate has been this elite debate for quite a long time. And foreign policy is sort of it's sort of the nature of foreign policy. It's, it's, a, it's a field of discussion where there isn't usually very much democratic input. Public is generally presented with fait accomplis on various um, issues, and, you know, AUKUS being an example. Mm, and getting a, a white paper delivered to us. Yeah, that's right. And, and obviously, you know, there's a whole cohort of people, um, including Paul Keating, who, who have a you know, a legacy of time in office and so on. It was very much associated with redirecting the Australian economy towards Northeast Asia and, and China in particular. And they, you know, they see on balance that to be, have been a positive thing. And, you know, people like Paul Keating, I I think that a lot of what he says is on the money. I think that, you know, sometimes critics of people like Paul Keating have a point as well that, as a consequence of that elite engagement with China, they have now developed all sorts of interests in sustaining a profitable Australia-China relationship and so on. And I, I try in my book and everything that I do to, to sort of offer a third perspective on this discussion. So I'm not coming to this from the point of view that, you know, well, we just need to maintain the trade balance with China because that's, you know, that's making us rich and it'd be really stupid not to not to continue that. I mean, my basic position is ultimately the kind of relationship that Australia or China have could be of all different shades. The point is that the course we're on now is heightening tensions uh, in the region. It's having damaging consequences for Australian society, both in terms of civil liberties, both in, you know, the rise of racism. Uh, and so on. And, and that's all for me reason enough to be opposed to the policy direction that we're on. Now, ultimately, yeah, I mean, any shift in policy is, is going to stir up all sorts of questions about Australian identity, the, the question of Australia's place in Asia, uh, and so on. Those, you know, those sorts of things are all, all sort of implicated in this discussion. Where I also would take issue at times with the the sort of rhetoric that people like Paul Keating put forward is this sense that you get that if if Australia just sort of, you know, loosened its ties with the US that, that, you know, things would be a lot better. It's a a perspective that I think a lot of people who are sceptical of the direction of policy at the moment uh, tend to have that, that we're just being pushed into this by the US. We've signed up to this crazy uh, American strategy. And I I I think that that sort of lets 
Canberra off the hook a little bit. I mean, I think that Australia's orientation towards the US, you know, is driven by Australia's own less ambitious perspective, but 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 nonetheless, you know, a a perspective to dominate its immediate region, to be able to call the shots in the Pacific, play some sort of role in in shaping the politics of, of Southeast Asia, uh, and so on. And I, I think if we don't have a critique of you know Australia's own imperial instincts towards the region, then we're going to be in for trouble because ultimately whatever happens in the China-US relationship, I mean, there is going to be a growing Chinese presence in the Pacific, so on. I mean, it's just just inevitable, the, the size of China's economy, the options that China seems to present to elites in, in that region, it's going to, you know, it's going to draw China in there. If, if our policy is guided by the idea that this is our backyard, that we need to exercise some sort of Monroe doctrine to, to keep any competitors out of this, this region, then that's going to be fuel for China panic, you know, for, for decades to come, um, I worry. Indeed. We did even see around AUKUS and that announcement of the deepening ties, military and other ties between the UK, the US and Australia, that in fact, the reason why apparently we needed a different type of submarine that the French would not be able to supply us with was because it's now not about just defending Australia's territorial waters. It's also now about offence and this idea that we need to take an aggressive stance in terms of our foreign policy and defence. And that really was pretty much a, a clear head tip towards China and to say that you know, now that Australia needs to step up beside the US in the Indo-Pacific region, now that they have embarked upon this strategy of encirclement, as you say, that it's not just about containing China now, it's about, you know, surrounding them. And the US already does that with the number of military bases it has around China. And I know that that is something which is obviously a major issue for China, to say the very least. So, I mean, if we talk about and look at the fact that Australia is kind of changing its position, the US has ramped up its position under Trump and now Biden in terms of its rhetoric and this idea that, you know, the world isn't big enough for the two of us and that, you know, it's a choice between democracy and autocracy and As you even point out in this book, there's rhetoric around saying that the existence of China is threatening our way of life. The fact that it even this country exists is is a threat. I mean, when you read it on a piece of paper, it really does sound quite fanciful that the debate has gotten that far. Because as many people point out, including yourself, we're not applying the same standards to China as we do to the United States. And the whole idea that China should be playing by some special rule book that the United States has helped to create, you know, is quite unfair because even the US doesn't play by its own rule book. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the double standards that are at play here in terms of our expectations of China and should it be checking its power and putting its head down in the region while it grows, which seems highly unlikely and unreasonable. And also America's idea that there's only room for one of us and we've got to this point where it's about our way of life, our values, and it's about democracy and autocracy. Yeah, well, I I think that the, you know, when people talk about China breaking the rules, I really don't think that the, the thing that we need to be worried about is China breaking the rules so much as China playing by the rules, you know, because when you look at the international system, one of the rules is clearly that great powers have the ability to 
pick and choose. When they follow international law, they have the ability to exercise unilateral use of, of military force when they feel it's necessary. There's, you know, great power behavior is, is it's not a nice thing. Um, and it's not something that we should ever encourage or welcome uh, from anyone, including China. The problem is, of course, Australia's response to China is all about buttressing and bolstering America's ability to continue to exercise that great power privilege. So it's very troubling to, to think that the, the logic of this situation is gradually pushing China towards more American style actions internationally. You know, we, we see that with China sort of defending its friends from criticism at the United Nations and, you know, trying to assert more of a sphere of influence in its uh, immediate neighborhood. Of course, it's very difficult, China being in the position it, it is, to ever conceive of the sort of regional hegemonic ambitions that, that America has asserted in you know, a place like Latin America or, or so on. But nonetheless, I mean, China clearly wants to push America back in East Asia. A lot of the, a lot of the rhetoric that gets talked up in our media as China being belligerent or aggressive, when you look at what China is usually what they're saying in those sort of speeches and so on is, is back off. Mm. Anyone who picks a fight with China is going to come a cropper, uh, essentially, is the, the sort of stuff that Xi Jinping has been, you know, inserting into his speeches. So that's not something we should be, um, we should be happy about. It's, it's just that, you know, as I said, our, our response is doing nothing to really challenge the dynamics here. We just have some fantasy that we can muscle up and win this contest Whereas what we really should be doing is, you know, trying to come good on some of this very noble sounding rhetoric about, you know, international law and sovereignty and so on that, that we like to, um, to talk about and, and discussing how we could actually create a world in which big countries don't bully the small and so on. That's, I think, the only credible framework in which you can actually come at a, a critique of what China is doing or what China will potentially do in the future. But it's, you know, it's just very far from where the Australian discussion is at the moment. There's a whole chapter, you know, early in your book devoted to China and, and Chinese history and where China came from. And this is something, you know, I've spoken about a little bit in the past is their very, very long history and their perception of themselves in the world and how that's changed over time. And also their perception of the quote unquote West and, you know, Western values, liberalism and democracy. And I think that's often also missing in this discussion is that we've become very obsessed from our own perspective. Obviously, historians like yourself and, um, you know, people in those types of professions are trained to put themselves in other people's shoes and to, to look at things critically and to understand people from a different time of a different culture. So I wonder, could you also, you know, share with us China's perspective in this situation, particularly drawing on their history, because their history is very much referenced all the time in terms of how they see themselves. So I just wondered if you could just, yeah, share with us the China perspective from the Chinese government, but also just from, I guess, Chinese people, because those two groups are not exactly the same. And that's also another issue that should come up more and should be differentiated. Yeah, not at all. And it's, I mean, it's an extremely diverse place in the political discussion, despite the, the quite chilly climate publicly in China. You know, there's all different points of view uh, regarding all these questions uh, exist in, in China. 
very long history that is, you know, that's the foundation for all sorts of notions about the longevity of China or the sort of the essential nature of China as a state or civilization and so on. I, I'm not as invested in those sorts of narratives, although they, you know, a lot of people still find them the meaningful. I, I think the key thing is to have a sense of the, the trajectory of things from the, you know, the beginning of the point of contact and uh, engagement and then conflict in the 19th century which you know we have to remember was often motivated by the sort of liberal principles that people still uh, espouse today you know the opium war was fought to uphold the principle of free trade you know western domination of the qing dynasty's institutions you know dictating uh extraterritoriality for its citizens and so on was part of this sort of imagined process of civilizing China that, that, you know, people naturally reacted against. And I, and I think, you know, Chinese who were concerned to extricate their country from this situation um, at the end of the 19th century, massively mired in debt, political fragmentation, um, on its knees politically, economically, you know, they developed a pretty sober, realistic uh, appraisal of the nature of the world system and the nature of liberalism. And, you know, did not necessarily see, I mean, China had experiments with parliamentary system uh, early on in the 20th century, but it wasn't enough to contain the centrifugal forces that were at work uh, at that time. And, you know, which often involved different Western parties backing different warlords and so on. So, you know, Chinese politics became quite militarized and both major parties that emerged, the Kuomintang and the communists, essentially had the same notion of a, you know, the need for a disciplined party to wage a struggle against um, imperialism, some sort of revolution would be necessary to, to save China. So that's, you know, that's that's why Chinese politics has taken the, the shape that it, it did. I don't think there's anything sort of inherent in Chinese history that would dictate that modern China is going to be this relatively illiberal single party state. I, I, I see that more as a as a reaction to the situation that China found itself in. Now, once that's established, of course, you know, you have a, a lead to party bureaucracy that, that, you know, sees their survival as as equivalent to the survival of China and the party develop its, its own interest in holding on to power and, and all these things. And, and we, we see all that playing out. But, but I think this general skepticism towards the the benign intentions of the West is something that's pretty widespread still. And at a base level kind of sustains uh, the legitimacy of the Communist Party. I mean, certainly when people do, you know, comparison of political systems today, you know, it is now quite informed by direct comparisons that people are drawing as people travel around and, and so on. And people looking at the experience of recently handling things like COVID and so on. And all of that, that, that China people acknowledge has been through some disastrous periods, even since its revolution, there's a general sense that things are well things are relatively on track now and that you know the parties claim that that we need stability to keep the momentum going now that uh, we can't afford too much democracy too much dissension within the party that kind of thing that that there could be a bumpy ride ahead as we take over from the us as the the world's leading economy uh so on all of these things i think are pretty widely recognized attitudes you know, I would say there's still a political debate going on in Beijing. I mean, just as we have hawks and doves in our foreign policy elites, you know, China China does as well. Um, there'll be people in Beijing now who will be, you know, still on the lookout for some sort of opening from the US to maybe try to tone things down a little bit. 
reach some sort of resolution to some of these immediate points of conflict. There are also, though, of course, people saying that things have crossed a line. The US has done enough now for us to be persuaded that it's never going to you know, tolerate the continued growth of China in terms of its economic influence, translating into political influence. And we just need to steel ourselves for the conflict to, to come. So China has got to this point historically as a country with a sense of vulnerability, as a country that has seen itself as having to tack between relationships with more powerful countries, US, Soviet Union. And so, you know, I think there'll still be an instinct to, to continue that sort of uh, strategy. Of course, you, you do have the more hardline, assertive approach saying, you know, now this is our time to shine. Not be too concerned about uh, accommodating the US or, or reaching accommodations with the US. Well, it certainly seems that at the moment, the rhetoric, at least from the US, isn't declining. And you mentioned in the book, um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who was saying various things at his Senate confirmation hearing, including that um, he said, quote, President Trump was right in taking a tougher approach to China, but apparently, you know, went about it the wrong way. And he says that, quote, China is a strategic adversary. These are clear signs that Biden isn't stepping down. Biden himself has really ramped it up, even after the election, where you would assume that now he has his position secure, that he doesn't necessarily have to take the same stance in responding to Trump and political wedging on China, that we haven't seen that happen. So I guess from that perspective, it seems like it puts everyone in a position where there isn't really a spot to back down from and that we're also here in Australia seeing commentators say that war with China is inevitable and that the the drums of war are beating and, you know, these things are, are only ramping up and it seems that it's a bit of a cycle that we've kind of got ourselves into now. And obviously it's very difficult for any side to find some common ground. Obviously a lot goes on behind the scenes that we don't hear about, but we do hear about the fact that nothing much is happening behind the scenes between Australia and China, which is disturbing for many people who commentate in this area. You say in the book, and I don't believe this has changed, that leaders of the two countries, Australia and China, have not held prearranged talks since 2016. Uh, ministers haven't done the same since 2018. And obviously, we have saw in the last few years, these um, various kinds of informal export bans and trading disputes around certain exports like wine. So I, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on Australia and how we are ramping things up here, not just our politics, but also this discussion about war, this idea that this end game somewhere down the track is war and that that's um, somehow inevitable. I mean, what does that do to the current state of Australian politics and also just society and this idea of China panic? I mean, clearly it must not help things. Uh, no, well, look, there's no relationship with China to speak of um, right now and there hasn't been for some time. And I, I think that we've got ourselves into this position now where this claim that all of China's actions towards Australia are undermining sovereignty and that um, it's got to the point now where people essentially argue that any change in policy, any consideration of grievances that China has put forward, that in and of itself would be a, a concession of Australian sovereignty and therefore is not possible. So 
you know, I just can't see any politician at this particular point in time putting up their hand and even saying that we, we need to talk to China. The likelihood that someone is going to jump on that and accuse them of, of kowtowing to Beijing um, is pretty high these days. So, so I do think that we're sort of stuck in this in this situation. I think that the Australian foreign policy elite are going to drive this strategy to uphold America's position in Asia for as long as it looks viable. And so obviously that'll depend on how long that seems to be viable. And that will depend to some extent on US-China relations. Or they'll push it until there's enough opposition from broader Australian society to stop it, which you know is something I would like to see. And we're sort of starting to see certain amount of campaigning emerging. The, the AUKUS deal has triggered, I think, a slightly broader response from civil society in Australia to the military buildup in the way that it's brought in people who are concerned about nuclear submarines, people who are concerned about uh, environmental issues and, uh, and so on. But I mean, you know, we're in a very dangerous situation. I mean, I think that we do have to keep in mind, of course, that Australia's actions in and of themselves can never be determinative in this in this sort of situation. Australia's not going to go to war with China by itself, right? So there is always this element of lobbying to what Australia is doing that, you know, Australia wants to see America muscle up to China. Australia wants to embed America in the region militarily. Ultimately, though, that does all, you know, contribute to increasing the risk that we will get uh, involved uh, in some sort of war. This is, it's the, I think it's more the fine print in AUKUS that we need to be thinking about because, you know, nuclear submarines, if they're ever built, and there's a question around that, they might not be ready for 20 years. And no one really th- thinking about China in the defense ministries of, of the world is, is working with a 20-year time frame. But I think what we do risk seeing is just the, the continual beefing up of the American military presence in the north of Australia, visits from American warships, you know, installation of missiles in the north of Australia, and, and so on, you know. Morrison is boasting about the fact that he's uh, he's increased defence spending, and all of that is is very troubling. It's having a quite a devastating effect, I think, in sections of the Chinese Australian community. People who are watching this are, you know, becoming aware of the fact that it's much harder for people of Chinese background now to to put their hands up and have opinions about Australian foreign policy, Australian relations with China. And so on. And I mean, it's also been compounded, of course, by the COVID pandemic. These things sort of mixed in a very toxic way. The idea that Chinese people were some sort of fifth column for the Chinese Communist Party got mixed up with this idea that Chinese people were spreading this virus. And you would sort of see these tropes blending. Um, And, you know, nowadays people just have to expect that if they if they're running and they've you know, got a Chinese name or Chinese background, they're going to cop a lot of racist crap about being a Chinese spy and and so on. And this is why I think, you know, we do need to be more critical when ASIO just drop these stories into into the media about influence operations, because on the one hand, they can say, well, okay, no, we've, we've disrupted it. There's nothing happening. It's, you know, it's problem solved. But, you know, when they don't give any details, they just say that there's someone doing this and, um, targeting different candidates, you know, they don't say who, all that really does is create a cloud of suspicion that uh, over everyone, <laughs> because, you know, we don't know who's, you know, who's involved. Yeah. It could be anyone. And that's, you know, that, that's why I really do think it's, it's important that we don't just allow it to be established that 
you know, there's this foreign interference thing that's that's up there with terrorism as this, you know, incredible threat to Australian sovereignty because, you know, that sort of thing can drive, you know, deep wedge through, you know, Australian society. And we're, we're already starting to see that, starting to see that happening. I think it's potentially going to be a rough few months coming up to the election if things continue as they have. It certainly has real world effects. I mean, even when we saw Donald Trump talking about China and linking it with COVID-19 and using very inflammatory language, it's caused anti-Chinese racism and anti-Asian violence in America. And we've seen that widely reported and it's only been escalating in nature and, and the figures support that. Even here in Australia, we saw reports around people of Chinese heritage saying that they had been targeted physical harassment or racism on the street. Um, And it certainly has ramped up as well in the last few years because of the, the COVID pandemic. But obviously, these political debates they stoke the flames, they make things worse. There's an absolutely no question about it. And it does mean that there's more likelihood that there's division. And as you say, this unfair cloud of suspicion, and that's a really concerning problem for obvious reasons. I wanted to, um, in this final part of the conversation, to just talk about that in a little bit more depth in the sense that I myself am very interested in history and and especially the Chinese experience in Australia and, you know, I've done my own research in there. And, and I was really interested to know, and I think many people would, that it's been two centuries since the first Chinese migrant settled here in Australia. It's been over 174 years since the first Chinese migrants arrived on Victoria's goldfields. So the Chinese person who, you know, came to Australia you know, many of whom went back to China, but also many of whom stayed, are part of Australia. And Chinese Australians and Australians with Chinese heritage are essential to this country, like all the other migrants are here. And you pick this up in the book, this idea that we originally have been very proud of our so-called multiculturalism, but now the infrastructure around multiculturalism and even the discussions about multiculturalism have kind of fallen apart and, and really dissipated. And now we're left with this far more divisive rhetoric. So I wondered when we're thinking about how we actually change things for everyone, um, but particularly for Chinese Australians and, and also Asian Australians, you know, what are the things that we can do? as citizens, you know, especially with this election looming and this ever-increasing rhetoric that we don't necessarily have control over in terms of what comes out of the mouth of a politician, what can we do to disrupt the racism that seems to be just constantly building in society here and to make sure that we're doing what we can to ensure that we're using our position of privilege if we are not a member of those groups to actually stop it from happening? I mean, you're quite right about the point of Australia, you know, Chinese Australians. I, I think at the height of the gold rush, you know, the percentage of Chinese in Australia was at a point that it didn't get back to until, you know, the 1990s, I think, you know. So there were points in the 19th century when Australia was really quite a culturally quite a Chinese place. Mm, well, they were the second largest ethnic group. Indeed, indeed. So I think that people get a little bit thrown today when they're looking at what's going on and you know people talking up the china threat come back with this line you know i'm not anti-chinese i'm not racist i'm just anti-ccp you know there's nothing wrong with criticizing the chinese communist party and 
to take that up just for a second, I mean, of course, there's nothing wrong with criticizing the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, I criticize the Chinese Communist Party all the time. You know, I was supportive of the movement in Hong Kong. I still write and talk about the situation in Xinjiang, which is very dire for the Uyghurs there and so on. You know, and people say, well, you know, it's not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. You know, this is the same thing. And if, again, I completely agree. It's not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. But, you know, my response to that is to say, well, if you were cultivating this discourse that Israel was on the verge of taking control of the Australian political system, that Israel wanted to take over Australia and was using people in Australian society to advance that objective, well, I think pretty soon you would start to see that generating anti-Semitism. And I think in the same way that the way in which the, the inflation of this threat has gone on um, you know, people even talk about China wanting to make territorial claims on Australia. Um, this is something in Clive Hamilton's book. You know, once you set things up in that way, I think it just follows that you're going to get suspicion and animosity towards Chinese Australians. And, and no amount of watching your language, saying, you know, I'm anti-CCP, not, not anti-China, no amount of doing that is going to diminish the paranoia that gets generated. So, you know, so I think if we do really want to hit this on the head, we do have to confront some of those exaggerated claims that are being put forward about the, you know, the degree of influence or control that the Chinese government has in Australian society or economy. You know, I mean, Chinese investment in Australia is actually pretty low um, in comparison to other countries like Britain and, and the United States. I don't think people who are lobbying for the Chinese government are all that effective in gaining entry to the, um, you know, to the halls of power in, in Australia. I mean, if, if particularly when you consider the way politics has gone in the last four or five years, it'd be hard to argue that China is actually having much influence on Australian politics right now. It's going in exactly the opposite direction it would like to see. Now, the thing is, of course, like not everyone is up for this foreign policy discussion. You know, people come to anti-racist politics from, from different directions. Some people just have this sense that people of Chinese background are being picked on, you know, and, think, you know, quite legitimately where we need to have more Chinese Australians, you know, in politics, in the media, so on. And, you know, those sorts of issues, like absolutely we should be supporting calls for, for that sort of anti-racist politics. There are, there are groups out there trying to campaign around these issues, responding to hate attacks and, uh, and so on. But I do think that we've got to pull our society and our, our government off this dangerous path that it is going down. I think that all of the old tropes about, you know, Chinese demographic swamping, um, these are all starting to um, you know, starting to emerge again in the culture. Um, you know, I talk in my book about a novel that is, is all about the Chinese government buying the island of Tasmania and removing the white population. And it, it's, it's sort of a, an analogy with the, you know, the actual fate of the indigenous population in Australia. So white Australians are starting to imagine themselves the victims of a colonial genocide of the kind that we inflicted on the, the native population. And I think once that sort of stuff starts to find acceptance in mainstream culture, then, well, the more work we're going to have to have to undo it. So, yeah, I mean, I think that have to stand up in the here and now and, and speak out. And, and I think that, honestly, the more people who are not of Chinese background, 
taking up this stuff, I think the better because then, you know, that just makes it harder for people to pin this as an, some sort of ethnic issue that, that people of Chinese background who might be criticizing the government, that that has something to do with their background, right? That this is uh, reflective of some sentiment that's confined to the, the Chinese Australian community. We don't want that perception to develop. Chinese Australians are the immediate victims of, of a lot of this, but you know, we all stand to lose from this warmongering. Um, you know, we lose in the way that ASIO is empowered with more laws to impinge on our on our civil liberties. We lose when public funding is redirected from health and education to buying missiles and developing military bases. And we all lose when Australia becomes a more angry, xenophobic place. Absolutely, we do lose. And um, I mean, it's really stark at the moment and hopefully things don't progress the way they look like they will. But I think that's true that we do need to keep calling this out and to also not expect that this is something that Chinese Australians should have to go out and do themselves um, to go out and have to defend themselves against these types of ridiculous claims. As you say, it is really concerning for our own democracy and for our own social cohesion. It's kind of a complicity by letting it slide. So thank you so much, David, for taking the time to chat with us today and to actually get into this in a great deal of depth and nuance. I'm really appreciative of that. And um, I do hope that this has just been a little spark for anyone who's interested in the issue to actually head out and get David's book, China Panic, Australia's Alternative to Paranoia and Pandering, which is out through the La Trobe University Press imprint, and that is put out through Black Ink, so um, you can find that all online. Thank you once again, David, for taking the time to chat with us today, and, uh, yeah, I really appreciate your contribution to the discussion. Thanks, Amy. It's been a pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.